Did you watch this year's Super Bowl? No, no. Okay, I watched it. I, you know, neither team were my favorite teams, but I watched it anyway. It's kind of like a ritual. Okay, Julie, you watch it? Are, are you a Falcons fan since you're a Southern girl? None, necessarily. Okay, it's kind of the same with me, although they were really good. Well, I'm watching this thing. Uh, you know, I really didn't have a dog in this fight. I mean, you know, the Cowboys weren't in it, so okay. Um, but but uh, I'm, I'm watching this thing, and I'm uh, all the way through. I'm thinking, man, the Falcons are amazing. They're going to whip the Patriots. And in about the about midway through the third quarter, I started thinking, Brady's going to pull this thing out again. And certainly by midway through the fourth quarter, you thought, oh, here they go again. Now, can you tell yet? I'm not a fan of the Patriots nor Tom Brady, but okay. Amen. All right. Don't judge me if you're from New England, okay? But isn't it interesting when we think uh, all is kind of over, wait till the fourth quarter. Um, if you're a March Madness fan, uh, you know, several of those games turned out exactly the opposite of what you thought they were going to. The predictions were defied. Uh, and the word that we use, the word that we use in the English language and kind of our sports nomenclature is this was an upset. This was an upset. Well, the truth is that um, despite what preparations that coaches and players undertake to assure victory, sometimes those preparations... Um, uh, cover a wide spectrum from uh, that which makes a lot of sense to uh, actually the hilariously superstitious sometimes. But history tells us there's no 100% assurance of victory no matter how much preparations are made. Upsets happen. By contrast, what we're going to look at today in the scriptures speak of that which is absolutely assured. If you've read the end of the book, the right team wins, and you don't have to worry about that anymore. Okay? That which is absolutely assured. I, I remember thinking in that game, Julie, thinking, well, the Falcons are so far ahead, this thing is done, and it was nowhere near being done until the last tick of the, um, the overtime. So I am glad in, in our Bibles we can talk about that which is absolutely certain and assured. Today we're going to read from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and um, we're going to talk a little bit here about um, what Paul calls in 2.16 and in 16.25, he's going to say, you can have confidence in, and this is interesting that he would use this term, my gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that it's about him or that he wrote the gospel, that he made it up. It means that this gospel that he preaches, he's got total, absolute confidence in. It fulfills the foundational promises that God made to his people in history. It addresses the deepest need of rebellious humanity. It transforms death to life and slavery to freedom. And the result is nothing less than fallen humanity's reconciliation with our creator, God. Now, in laying out these truths, Paul was urging the Christians in Rome to renew their commitment, not just to God, but to each other. And the problem with that is there was some division in the church 
uh, between those who were raised Jewish and had all of that Old Testament background and those who were Gentile and did not have. Each group seemed to have been asserting a greater claim to God's forgiveness, to God's grace. And so Paul's going to, starting at about chapter 3, he's going to start talking about that, the fact that no group can claim a privileged position. For we're all rebels against God. But he begins to share the good news that through Christ, all can be reconciled. All can be forgiven. Now, I want you to go to your Bible. So you're in chapter 5. Let's look at just verse 1, okay? Here's the theme he's going to introduce. 5-1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you're reading the Bible, especially the New Testament, and it says, therefore, you need to look back at what it's there for, okay? Therefore, so he's been teaching for three chapters here. You could argue five chapters, and he makes a pivot at 5-1 and says, therefore, and he's getting ready to give the truth, and that's where we're going to start today, beginning in... Um, in verse 6, we're going to jump down to when we reach verse 6, the apostle is going to allow us to consider even greater proof of the assured peace and hope that Christians have as God's reconciled people. We have got to live, my friends, with assurance in our hearts. John, you and I talked about this earlier this week. I've got to know that I know that I know that I know. If I'm a survive and thrive as a believer. Steve Blair, would you start at chapter 5, verse 6, and read down through 11 for now? You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It reads like prose, doesn't it? Almost like poetry. It is so beautiful, even in the context of this soaring theological language. So let's begin now with verse 6 and talk about uh, what Paul is dealing with here. We have to catch this. Regardless of who we are or what we have done, so it really doesn't matter who your parents were, your grandparents, or whatever. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter even what you've done. We are all helpless. We are all without the ability to remove our own guilt. Turn with me back one page, if your Bible's like mine, to chapter 4, and look at verse 5. There's a word here that applies to everyone in this room and everyone to whom Paul wrote and everyone who's ever walked the planet except one, okay? Look at four, verse five. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited 
as righteousness. So there's, there's a little bit of context there that we won't worry about right now. But the idea is all of us are members of the group referred to here as, are you ready for this? You're not going to like this. The ungodly. Now, in my life, I've met some really godly people. Many of them are in this room. But left to your own, you're in a group with everybody else who's ever walked. Known as the ungodly. That means that I'm helpless. I'm without the ability to remove my own guilt. So what God did was he gave his innocent life in place for my guilty one. There's only been one ever who walked this planet innocent completely. It's interesting when we talk about certain injustices in the world, we want to say, but he was innocent or but she was innocent. And the truth is none of us have ever been completely innocent. That's one of the messages of the first three or four chapters of Romans. We all are guilty. We are all in that group known as, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, whether you were raised in uh, Oklahoma City or in Wisconsin, Kathy. We're all a part, I didn't mean to indict you in particular, I just happened to see you there. We're, or in Perkins. Sorry, Stillwater. I thought you were, you hang out in Perkins now though sometimes. We're all part of that group known as the ungodly. Regardless of where you came from or what mom and dad did. Okay? It's really cl a clear distinction that Paul wants to make. And he goes on then in verse 7 to say, he, he makes a, a real stretch here, but he says, you know, occasionally maybe, maybe, even though he says it's very rare, someone might voluntarily die for someone who's good or someone might voluntarily die for someone who's righteous. I just finished a book last week uh, on a group of uh, American soldiers that were involved in uh, the D-Day invasion. And uh, I read their stories and they're incredibly inspiring to me. And... Um, and it harkened me back to uh, Spielberg's movie, Saving Private Ryan, which is a, a lot of that is about the D-Day invasion. And I actually, this morning, early this morning, pulled, Googled a, a particular scene that I thought I remembered. If you remember, Tom Hanks is kind of the main actor in it. He plays uh, Captain Miller. You remember what his job was? Save Private Ryan. Okay, his job was... There was, a, there was a soldier who was, who was in harm's way who all of his brothers had been killed in battle. And his task was to make sure that Private Ryan made it home. To carry on the family name and whatever. But Captain Miller didn't make it home. And in this point, if, you, if you're interested, it's probably the best scene of the movie, in, in, in this really poignant scene, Captain Miller is dying. 
He's been mortally wounded. They've treated his wounds, but it's clear he's going to die. And he calls Private Ryan, who was played by Matt Damon, and he gets him up really close to his face. And with what little strength he has left, with his kind of dying words, he says, earn this. Earn it. There's a problem with that thought where you and I and God and Jesus are concerned. You say, I can't earn it. I, I'm, can I just make a confession to you? I'm just not that good on my own. Can I make another confession to you? Maybe for you? Neither are you. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It had to be a gift or none of us would make it. But the beauty of it is that the cross of Christ makes all the difference. Now, here's, here's the great truth. Verse 8. Let me read verse 8 again. Chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, we've got to, this is one of those soaring, uh, wonderful summary passages of the book of Romans. The great truth is this. Christ died for sinners, and I was one of them. Beyond the bonds of human heroics, there was one supreme gift, and there is one there is no firmer foundation for confidence in my life than looking at, gazing at, trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ. I can count on that. I can claim that power in my life. And I can appropriate it as being a person who's loved and forgiven. Now, I'm going to tackle something here in just a minute, but I want us to go back to uh, chapter 3. Um, um, Cindy, would you go to 323, because it's really important, and read down through 26. 323, down through 26. Some, of the, some more of the real meat of this book. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Carried forward to chapter 5, Christ demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now in context, if I leave 5.8 by itself, I'm going to miss a pretty important truth. The great truth is that Christ died for us as sinners. But moving on to verse 9, what I've got to recognize here is that regardless, or because maybe, of this, of this truth, repentant sinners are righteous now 
and can live with that fear later. When I come to that time, Rhonda, I'll talk a little bit in a minute about what we were up to yesterday, but we knew August 21st where your mom was headed. She could approach it without fear. I don't have to fear death because I can know that when that time comes, Romans 5, 8 was for me. Romans 5, 9 is for me. I've accepted it. I've appropriated it in my life. But here's, here's my concern. Okay. Uh, back in the amazing 80s, I think, um, the Gaither Trio was still singing. Anybody, anybody go that far back? Remember the Gaither Trio? It was always Bill and Gloria and somebody else. For a long time, it was Bill and Gloria and Danny. Uh, and, and then Danny died, and, and they had a kind of steady stream of other ringers that came in and sang the lead part. One of my favorites, maybe my favorite, is a guy by the name of Gary McSpadden. I don't know what Gary's background was, but man, he was smooth. And Gary did some albums of his own, both when he was with the Gaither, with the Gaither Trio and after that, and he made really popular a song that has carried into Christian nomenclature and can I dare say into Crossing's nomenclature. He said and sang, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Can I tell you something? Romans 5, 9 blows the lid right off of that. The Bible calls you in the New Testament, the Bible calls you, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and are living for him, the Bible does not call you a sinner. It calls you a saint. Can you, I want you to get used to that. Well, I'm just a sinner. Okay? Sorry, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you're a converted sinner, folks. And the Bible calls you a saint. It's a really important distinction here in verse 9. Because of what, and, and you got to be careful here. Because if you're, and I, and I know when people say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I know what they're saying is, uh, they're trying to speak in humility. I get that. The truth is, you are a saint you are a holy one in him, not because of you and what you've done. Can I help you with that a little bit? You have been given that position because of what he did on your behalf. Even when I pray, I recognize that I have no right to that. And yet, I've been given the right because of what he did for me. Now, verse 10 uh, begins to talk about the price which was paid. Look, look at verse 10. Back to chapter 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So it's kind of that this begins with this while or whom, if your, your translation uh, says it that way. Uh, it's kind of this wonderful little uh, uh, turn of words here. If while, okay. Now, due to the price that was paid for you, I can have confidence now about the future. 
And he uses two words, one in verse 9 and one in verse 10. Both of them are different words that come from a different arena to describe our position in him. In verse 9, he's going to use the word justified. That's a word from the courtroom. In verse 10, he's going to use the word reconciled. That's a word from relationships. Now, Cindy, can I, can I get you to go over to 2 Timothy 4, 8? There's, there's, a, um, there's a phrase here used when Paul writes to Timothy later about what Jesus has done for us and about the confidence we can have. Um, this passage is very important to me and will be important to me the rest of my life. It was the, the passage that most depicted uh, my dad when he came to the end of his life. And I used it actually in, in his obituary. I used 2 Timothy 4, 8. Uh, you mind to read that verse for us, Cindy? Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now read the, just the first phrase again, would you? The first? First phrase. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Good. Crown of righteousness is the word in store. If you're reading from the NIV, are you reading from New American Standard? If you're reading from the NIV, it might say, now is laid up for you. What does it mean that it's something is laid up or in store? It's in layaway, but it's already been paid for. It, it's, uh, any of you girls have a hope chest when you were, when you were uh, back when you still had hope? Okay. I, I once dated a girl that I think her hope, hope chest should have been called the hopeless chest, but okay. Uh, but there was stuff laid up in there for a later time, right? Have you got some things laid up? Maybe, maybe you've got some cash set aside, laid up for retirement. If you don't, see Jeff Russell, he can help you with that, okay. Or, 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 or David Houston, he'd love to talk to you about money laid up for retirement, wouldn't you, pal? Okay, you gotta get that idea. What, what is laid up for me? What is in store for me according to? A crown. A crown of righteousness. The word in Greek is Stephanos. Isn't it interesting that, that the beauty of the book of Revelation is the four and twenty elders receive this crown of righteousness and they keep laying it at his feet. And he gives them another one and they lay that one at his feet. But it's laid up for me. I don't have to worry about it. I can live now based on what I know about my future because it's laid up for me. I just think that's a wonderful, wonderful thought here from, first, from 2 Timothy 4.8. Now, so the idea here, as we end this little section, then we're going to jump over to chapter 8. Our future salvation should transform that which is laid up for us should transform our present. So I'm going to ask you the question again. Are you a sinner or a saint? What'd you say? In God's eyes, you're a saint. In, in really Christian history's eyes, you're a saint. If, if, uh, if there was an Acts, you know, 29, it would write about the saints that are gathered at crossings on, on April 23rd. Okay? 
Are you a sinner or you're a saint? And that, here's the word that goes in the line. It's just, this is my own little, it's probably not even grammatically correct, so don't shoot me down too bad. Do you seem redeemed? Is it apparent that you are redeemed? The Bible here, in Romans 8, Paul is saying, if I have been redeemed, it ought to be kind of apparent. I ought to seem redeemed. When Joe and I, when I had hair, and Joe had more hair, okay, there was a poster that you could buy that was a lot of college guys' rooms that believed in Jesus that had, had a picture of Jesus or whatever it seemed like on it. And it was like a wanted poster. And it would say, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Do you seem redeemed? Okay? Nobody can answer that question for you, but you and God's Holy Spirit. Maybe that's a question to ask him today. In between wonderful worship music and the message and all that we're doing, maybe in a time of prayer today, just to say, Lord, do the people around me know that I'm redeemed? If you were to think about a song that you and I both sang back in the day, I'm redeemed, I'm redeemed, I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I'm saved from all sin, I'm walking in the light. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Are you redeemed? Does it show if you're put on trial for being redeemed, would somebody say, well, looks like it to me. The way they walk, the way he walks, the way she walks, the way they talk is evidence of redemption. Okay, let's turn the page now over to chapter eight, uh, one of the tremendous chapters of the Bible, obviously. In the interim period here, Paul is gonna contrast your old life and your new life from about 5.12 on all the way through 7.6 and beyond. And in chapter 8, he's going to talk about this issue of being triumphant or being uh, a conqueror. And so let, let's kind of get to that. Cindy, I'm going to bug you one more time. Read 31 down through 39. I'm not sure I can. You don't think you can? Andy, could you help us? Somebody. 8.31 through 39. Somebody. Sherman, that would be great if you could do that. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one condemned? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sharp as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Could it be any more beautiful? Let, let's talk here about what he's kind of dealing with. Paul asks a series of summary questions. And he's going to say that because of the cross, and for you and I, uh, seven days after Easter Sunday, because of the empty tomb in particular, you and I, uh, because of all these things, you and I need to know that no opponent can prevail. Can I tell you that? No opponent can prevail. And secondly, no hardship can prevail over me. Now, maybe that's uh, more important for you and me today. If we're facing some kind of a physical issue or worried about somebody in our family or we've got some great worry. No opponent do you really need to worry about. And the truth is that no hardship can take this away from you either. Uh, it's, it's a soaring, beautiful uh, passage here. I'm going I'm to jump over to 1 Corinthians 15 and just read a couple of verses. I read this uh, yesterday in prep for uh, what we did yesterday. Uh, but I'm going to go to verse 25. 1 Corinthians 15, which is a, a wonderful chapter about what the resurrection means. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. See that? No opponent. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Isn't it wonderful that because of the resurrection, Jesus said, you know what? You don't have to worry about death anymore. I got that. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is expected to put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. The idea here is that there is no hardship, there is no enemy, no opponent that can prevail over the child of God in Jesus Christ. And we get to share this victory with him. And back to chapter 8, Paul's going to tell us why we get to share this victory with him. Look at verse 33. Romans 8, 33. That Sherman so beautifully read just a minute ago. 8, 33 says it this way. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's a rhetorical question. God is the one who justifies. Here's the idea here. Who's the accuser? Look at verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. So the, the, the kind of tacit answer to the question in verse 33 is that the only one who could condemn us doesn't. In fact, he forgives us. Now, you get, if you get, catch nothing else today, you've got to let that sink in. The reason you are known today as a saint in Christ is because the only one in all the universe who could condemn you won't. If you memorize John 3.16, I beg you to memorize John 3.17 as well. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Isn't it wonderful to know that the condemner of your soul, Satan, the accuser, has been defeated. And the one who is the only one in all the universe to, to condemn you or to accuse you 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the only righteous one, has said, he's with me, she's with me. No condemnation. Could it be any more beautiful than that? And it goes on to say that he is our intercessor. He's praying for us to make it, to do well, to live the life. So in beginning of verse 35, and you heard Sherman read it a little bit ago. Beginning in verse 35, he begins to talk about things that are, the word that I want to use here is formidable. Uh, threats in line to separate us from God. Let me mention a few of them here. Trouble, pressure, or problems of any kind. Hardship, there are seven of them. Hardship, similar, a term for pressure, painful trouble. Persecution, the distress that's wrought by people who deliberately oppose us. The ancient world notes famine as a constant threat. The same is true for nakedness. Uh, when clothing is made by an intensive manual labor, and therefore very expensive, nakedness was a threat to them. And Paul uses the word danger eight times in 2 Corinthians to refer to perils that he had faced. So danger is in there. So all these things that are perilous, all of these things that are formidable, all these things are in line to separate us from God. And then in verse 36, he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. He puts it in there because it's a very old question, as old as mankind, really. It's what I would call the why question. God, if I'm yours and if you love me, why did this happen to me? Or why did this happen to people I love? A very old question. Our response is what is being dealt with here. We drove Friday night to Missouri. Um, came back last night. Rhonda's mom died eight months ago on Friday. Uh, and uh, we uh, had had her cremated and we'd never uh, done burial yet. We uh, uh, were waiting for a... Uh, had a grave marker to come in. We want to do all that at one time. And so we went to a little country cemetery outside of Carthage, Missouri yesterday and, and um, uh, in, a, in a really beautiful place called Emmanuel Cemetery, which I think is just wonderful. And uh, in cold rain, okay, everybody was under an umbrella but me. My old chrome dome was getting really wet. We buried Rhonda's mom. The most remarkable thing that happened in that 10 or 15 really cold minutes was not anything I said. And it wasn't even the fact that we sang Albert Brumley's I Fly Away when it was all over, which mom would really liked. The most profound thing that happened in that 10 or 15 minutes was Rhonda's brother saying what he said. And, you know, I kind of gave a few minutes for people to say what they wanted to say. Pete certainly uh, talked about what a wonderful woman she had been, what a uh, wonderful wife she'd been about their love together. Rhonda's brother, who's going through all kinds of stuff, I can't tell you how much, even this week, just stuff. I, I can't tell you, physical stuff and family stuff and, you know, worries over dad and worries over the business, all that kind of stuff. In the middle of all of this and burying his mother, he wants to talk about the resurrection. He testifies to the fact that more than ever in his life, 
he knows that Jesus is alive. That's a choice, friends, to declare the resurrection in the middle of hardship is a choice by faith. It may be the, one of the best things that's happened to me any Easter is to hear this, my brother, tell about it. In the middle of his asking some why questions, he affirmed he's alive. Okay, so look at verse 37. We're almost done. In all these things, we're overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. In fact, uh, the, the word that's used that's translated more than conquerors is only used here in the New Testament. It's like, um, it's like Paul is saying, this is a decisive victory. This is not the thunder beating the rockets on Friday afternoon, Friday evening, but this is Secretariat in the 1973 Belmont Stakes who won by 31 lengths. This is a blowout. You don't have to worry about it being close at the end. More than conquerors. More than a victory. And he begins to, in 38 and 39, talk about God's love that can't be overcome by any outside force. Let me read a couple of things to you as we close. You ever heard of psyophobia? Fear of shadows. Cockophobia, the fear of ugliness. Chorophobia is the fear of dancing. I have that fear. Uh, yeah. Pupophobia or puppophobia is the fear of puppets. Rhonda would say, they creep me out. Okay, yeah. Laliophobia is the fear of speaking in public. Ophthalmophobia is the fear of being stared at. Stasiophobia is the fear of standing or walking. I'm getting more of that these days. Homilophobia is the fear of sermons. I think that's interesting. There is even a phobophobia, which is the fear of phobias. Can I tell you something? According to Paul, in his climactic passage, I don't have to fear anymore. Because there's nothing outside and nothing in all of God's universe that can separate me from his love. Here's what I want you to put in the last blank and then we'll go. Christ, because of who he is and because of what he did for you, because of his perfect and sinless life and his spotless blood shed on the cross, is our unanswerable advocate. There's nobody that's got an argument that can win it. And you are the subject of that. Here's my challenge to you. Will you live like one of the redeemed today and this week? So that people around you will know it. Live as if he's alive. And people will know it. John 10 next week. Happy Easter. I'll see you.